Good morning, church. My name is Roger, and I'm part of the DOXA team here. And if I haven't gotten a chance to meet you, uh, I want to share a little bit about my, what my role here is at DOXA. So I, I have the privilege and the honor to lead an incredible group of godly men and women who God has just invited into this opportunity to move to Osaka, Japan, to help plant a church there. And so, man, we've been here for about a year and a half, and I just want to say thank you. Man, we, we are so grateful for Idoxa family and for the support and prayers that we've just had from you over this year and a half and all the different ways that you've been so generous to us. And we want to ask you for requests. We, we want to ask for your prayers. We want to ask that you keep praying for us. We want to ask first that you would pray that God would open up the borders of Japan. Again, completely out of our control, but we ask that you would just keep praying and asking God that he would open the borders of Japan so we'd be able to be there soon. We also ask that you would pray for us, that God would continue to grow our faith and love in him as we prepare to go. Man, we, we've already seen in this year and a half that we've been here how much as a team and personally God has continued to just like grow us and sanctify us. And pray that God would continue to do that as he prepares to send us to Japan. And then lastly, pray for the people of Japan. Pray that God would continue to work and just prepare the hearts of the people there. That as we, as we get to Japan, whenever that day is, that we would meet people that God had just been preparing and working in to receive his word and to believe and follow him. And so if, if you want to know how you can kind of, apart from these, keep praying for us, um, on our website under the tab Church Plants, you'll see one that says Osaka, Japan. If you click that, you could sign up to receive a newsletter of just prayer requests. Um, and we, we would feel honored. It would be our greatest desire that all of you would just sign up for that uh, because we need the Lord to work. It doesn't matter what we go and do there. If God doesn't work, it's for nothing. And we know that he has given us this incredible opportunity. He says, when, when you pray, I listen and I move. And so we, we invite you and we ask you to pray for us and to keep doing that. And so this morning, we're going to continue in the book of Genesis. And we're going to be going through chapter 16 and 17. And here, here's kind of what, what we're going to do today. We're going to read through Genesis chapter 16 and then we'll kind of go through that together, and then we'll read through parts of Genesis 17, and then we'll go through that together. And so if you have your Bibles, you have your phone, you can go ahead and, and be turning to Genesis chapter 16. And we'll be starting on verse 1, and we'll read through the whole chapter. And it says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived... She looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, 
servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You, you shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. He shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here, I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Be'er Laharoi. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. That is God's word. And so here's how we'll look at chapter 16, because there's a lot there, right? There's a lot of really awesome stuff. There's also a lot of really heavy stuff there. And so we'll look at the people involved in this story. First, we'll look at Abram and Sarai. Then we'll look at Hagar, and then we'll look at God. So if you look at Abram and Sarai, they seem filled with distrust towards God, right? And what does distrust towards God mean? I think one way you can define it as it is believing that God does not see you in your deepest needs and is therefore unable to or unwilling to give you what you need. I'll say that again. One way you can define distrust towards God is believing that God does not see you in your deepest needs and is therefore unable to or unwilling to give you what you need. And we see this distrust uh, in Abram and Sarai's actions towards God, right? They're given this poetic promise that we heard about last week in chapter 12 where God says, Abram, look up. Look at all those stars. You can't even count them. There's so many. He says, I'm going to give you more descendants than that. But you won't be able to count how much I will bless you with descendants. Yet here we are, right, 10 years later. They don't have a single kid, right? They don't have a single star to look at. They have, they feel they have nothing. And, and so rise in fertility, it, it begins to pose a challenge to trusting that God will fulfill his promise to them of giving them many descendants. And how do they respond to this challenge? How do they respond to this challenge contrary to what God has told them that he will do? Well, let's begin with Sarai. And let's look at her circumstances, right? She's about 80 years old at this point, and she's barren. She's been barren. Not only that, but she's older now. And then there's Abram, and he's about 90 years old at this point. And there's no, like, crazy contextualization needed there. Like, you couldn't bear children back then at that age just like you can't today, right? There, there's nothing special in that. The Bible's trying to show us they have these impossible circumstances in front of them. And so she has a choice, right? Her first choice is, does she trust that God sees her? Does, does she trust that God sees her need and trust that he is willing and able to provide for her despite these circumstances? Or 
does she see her bleak circumstances, which they totally are, again, right? Like, if we step into that story, can you imagine being her, receiving a promise, at this point waiting for 10 years, being 80, being barren, and having to trust and believe that God is going to do it. And she looks at these bleak circumstances, and does she decide to just find a way on her own to bring about what she needs, to just do it herself, because how is God going to do this? This makes no sense. And what does Sarai choose? What does she decide to do? And unfortunately, to the detriment of herself and those around her, she chooses the latter, right? She essentially says, if, if God won't build me a family, I'm going to do it myself. I'm just going to find a way to do it all by myself. If he's not going to do this, i got to take it up on my own hands. It's the only logical thing to do. It's the only thing that makes sense. Maybe that's what he would want me to do. And what is her distrust and doing things her way, not God's way, lead to? It's clear, right? She, she begins by forcing Hagar to sleep with Abram, her husband. And then she resents both Hagar and Abram for it. Right? She's faced with the reality that so many of us have felt that you won't like the fruit of your own sin. As enticing as it seems, as much as it promises, it never holds up the ends of its promise. We never will like the fruit of our own sin. Because choosing to trust God, to choosing to not trust God, never ends well. But now, what about Abram? He, he's not a bystander in this by any, by any means. What about him? He likewise sees his circumstances, and he has a choice, right? He, he, here are his choices. There's Sarai, his wife, and the promise that God has given him. But again, he sees her, and she's barren. She's been barren, and she's 80 years old. And he would have to believe that she will be able to bear a child to him now. And he knows that in order to choose that, God is going to have to do something he cannot do. He knows, like, there's nothing I can do to bring this about. Nothing. It would literally take a miracle. God himself is going to have to do something if I choose that. And what about his other choice? There's Hagar. And she isn't barren. She's much younger than Sarai. And he knew that I can do that. It is within my human ability. If I choose that, I know I can bring about a child. And so what does he do when he has these choices in front of him? Rather than trusting and believing that if God had put this, this roadblock in front of his promise that God is able to remove it or work around it, rather than believing that, what does Abram choose to do? He believes that God doesn't see his need and is therefore unable to or unwilling to provide for him. And he believes, well, I have to take it upon my own hands because God isn't doing anything. And you know what happens because of that? because of Sarai's choice to not trust God, because of Abram's choice to not trust God. 
Hagar, the vulnerable foreign woman, is abused. Because here's the truth. When people with power do not trust God's plans and his ways, the people without power suffer because of it. I'll say it again. When people with power do not trust God's plans and his ways, the people without power suffer because of it. Our entire human history is shaped by that. That's how slavery was created and remained. That's how the porn industry still exists today. That's how sex slavery still exists today. That's how some minorities are taken advantage of today. That's what has happened to Hagar here in this story. So what about Hagar? The Bible tells us she's an Egyptian servant, and she's not this by choice. She's a slave. And note, God does not, never has, and never will condone slavery. And in this story, God will show us to a great extent the damage and harm caused because of this institution and enablers and participators like Abram and Sarai. And don't don't miss this. God will show us his sympathy and actions on behalf of her condition. And so she's first abused and impregnated, and then she's, the Bible tells us she's mistreated so badly that she runs away. Can you imagine the pain and suffering that she was in? And maybe you can put yourself in her shoes you've ever been in a moment where your current situation is so painful, is so awful, that going away to something that has no hope feels so much better, that's where she's in. To her running away and being all alone in the wilderness was way better than whatever she was experiencing before. And as she's alone, afraid, I mean, surely with emotional and physical scars from her abuse, who's going to see her in the middle of nowhere? Who's going to help her in the middle of nowhere? Who will come and listen to her in the middle of nowhere? There's no one there. God will. God does. Right? Verse 8 says, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? God wasn't unaware of these things. He asked a question about what had happened to her and what would happen to her. And think about this. The God who knows everything, past, present, future, takes the time to gently ask questions. Isn't that wild? Like he's not asking the question to find out the answer. He already knows the answer. He's seen it. But he takes the time to gently ask questions. Why do you think that is? When do you feel heard? 
is that when someone just talks and talks and tells you your situation, or is it when someone stops to ask, to understand, to see you, and to hear you? That's what God is doing for Hagar. He wants to show her, to say, I'm here because you're hurting, and I want to hear it from you, and I'm here to do something about it. And it's interesting because we're told that, she's, she's told that God has listened to your affliction. And at least we don't see in the text that it says God has heard your prayers. You've been praying so much, you've done so much to clean yourself up that God has heard you. So now he has come to do something about it. That's not what it tells us. It says, the Lord has listened to your affliction. God sees this vulnerable woman who has suffered, and though she may have not have said a single word yet, her pain, her suffering, it cries out to him, and it compels God towards her. Because that's who God is. He has a heart that our very pain, it cries out to him. And it compels him towards us, not away from us. It is our very brokenness that moves him towards us, not away from us. That's why Jesus came. Right? God didn't look at us in our misery and need. And he didn't didn't say, you know what? That's what they deserve, right? They, they brought this on themselves. Like, they chose this. God didn't say, I didn't, make, I didn't make them do that. They chose to do this. That's what they deserve. They brought it on themselves. It's on them to figure it out. That's not what God did. God saw us in our hopelessness. And what did he do? He came. He condescended onto us. He came and entered into our suffering because our pain cried out to him. And so he came and met us where, no, where nothing else could save us. And if you read the gospel, that's what he, Jesus continues to do. It begins by him coming and he continues in his life. Because Jesus saw those no one else saw Those people that everyone walked over, those people who were just background noise, Jesus saw them and he heard them, right? He loved the unlovable. He forgave the unforgivable. He touched the untouchable. He went to them because their very pain cried out to him. It's wild, Because when people were in deep suffering and hopelessness, at times before they could even say a word, before they could even say, hey, help me, he moved towards them. He was so compelled by our pain that he couldn't even withhold back. He would already move before they even said anything. Because that's who God is. That's what Hagar experienced here. And how does Hagar leave this encounter? 
because she also has a choice, and it's not easy, right? She's told to go back to Abram and Sarai, which has to sound like the worst choice in the world. I remember reading that, and to me, I'm like, why? What does that mean? Why, why, would, why would he tell her that? And she had to choose that if she would, wanted to trust God, to trust that he sees her and that he's willing and able to meet her, even in the midst of seemingly impossible circumstances, like going back to Abram and Sarai. She had a choice to choose. If God is asking me to go back, to trust him, despite what seems like the worst choice in the world, can I do that? I mean, that doesn't make sense. Like, we, you read it, it doesn't make sense. I don't think it felt any difference for her. Probably worse. Or she also has another choice, right? She could ignore what she's been told because clearly, again, how, how could that be a good idea? There's no way. And she can just choose to look after herself even if it meant going against what God had told her. She could look at her situation and say, no, no, no. On, in this one specifically, I, I, gotta, I gotta do it myself because there's no way that, I don't see how that could ever work out. I, I gotta take this one upon my own hands. And what does she choose to do? To trust. In spite of the seemingly untrustable circumstances that she's in, she decides to trust God. Because the truth is, Trust doesn't come when all the circumstances are right. That's not trust. Trust comes when we see God for who he really is. And when we see God for who he really is, we can say, you're a holy and good God. This makes zero sense. But if you are asking me to do that, you would never sin against me. What it means for God to be holy is that he can never sin against me. So he's the most trustable person in the world. You know, that's what Jackie Hill Perry said in her book, which is wild, right? If God is holy, it means he can never sin against me, which means he is the most trustworthy person in the world. And as Hagar sees him, she says, I can trust you. Because even though I don't know how this is going to work out, and he doesn't tell her how it's going to work out, and it doesn't also play out the way you would think. She doesn't just go back and it's like, hey, Gar, we have this party for you. Everything's going to be great now. That's not how it works out. Keep reading after today. But God does work it out for his glory and her, and her good. Because Hagar saw God. Look at verse 13. She says, you are a God of seeing. Truly I have seen him who looks after me. I have seen him who looks after me. What does it mean to be seen? And I don't mean like literally, but I mean in that deeper meaning. What does it mean to be seen? To be seen is to be valued, accounted for, and respected for who you are, not for who you ought to be. Hagar had never truly been seen by anyone in her life. 
Her enslavers just saw her as someone to make a profit out of. Abram and Sarai just saw her as a servant to meet their needs and as an incubator for their child. But what about God? He saw her. He heard her. He knew her by name. He understood her history, and he spoke directly to her greatest fear by providing her needs and giving her a hopeful future through her son Ishmael. You know that Hagar is the first person in the Bible to give God a name. It's crazy. Did you know that Ishmael is the first person in the Bible who God gives a name to? Can you imagine being her, a slave, and God saying, from you will come nations and kings? Wow. God saw her and responded to her greatest fears. And I don't, I don't know your story. I don't pretend to. And, but this story cries out that this is who God is, it's who he was, and it's who he will continue to be. He's a God of seeing. He's a God of hearing. He's a God who moves towards you in your pain. It's like, have you ever felt like Hagar? That no one sees you that your condition is beyond helping, that no one will understand. If they do, it would just be judgment. But God says, that's not who I am. I see you. I hear you. And your pain cries out to me. And it moves me towards you, not away from you. Brokenness doesn't move God away from us. It moves him towards us. That's why Jesus came. Now, what about Abram and Sarai? Is God done with them? What about the covenant that he had made that he would save the world through them? But what about the wrong that they've done? Like, will God do something about that? Let's keep reading to find out. You can go to chapter 17, and we'll read verse 9, and we'll read verses 9, I'm sorry, we'll read verse 7 first, and then we'll read verses 9 through 11. Genesis chapter 17, verse 7 says, and I will establish my covenant, this is God speaking to Abram, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And verse 9 says, And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you, throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. That's God's word. It had now been, in chapter 17, it had now been 25 years since God first made the promise to Abraham. In chapter 17, it had now been 13 years since God last spoke to him in chapter 16. 
Still no kids. Still not a star. Yet, God is reminding them. He's saying, I have not forgotten. I am not delayed. He reaffirms his covenant with Abram and Sarai. He says, I will be God to you. The God of the entire universe who lacks and needs nothing says, I will be your God. How can God do that? I mean, surely he's seen what they've done, right? How can God say to someone like Abram and Sarai, I will be God to you. I will be your God. How can God be both just and merciful despite what they've done? Well, it begins with the sign of circumcision. It's odd, right? Like it feels out of place, like it, it feels like it doesn't really make sense. Like here's this profound statement by God and he says, and this is my covenant, circumcision. Why? Why would God choose circumcision? Because circumcision, circumcision will become a sign and a reminder for all of God's judgment, of God's mercy, and the faith that we need to be with him. Circumcision, it's first a sign of God's judgment. As God chooses to judge Abraham by making him cut off skin from the part of his body that he and Sarai used to abuse Hagar. And this mark on Abraham and all the generations after him, it's going to be a reminder that apart from following God's ways, that apart from trusting God, there's only suffering for self and those around you. But circumcision would also be a sign of God's mercy. As this mark will also be a remembrance that because of God's steadfast love towards his people, he is compassionate and forgiving through their failures. This sign will be a reminder that anyone, regardless of how bad they've messed up, regardless of how unforgivable they may feel, they can still be a part of God's family by denying their way and accepting his And lastly, circumcision will become a sign of faith. As this mark on the body will be a remembrance that trusting in your flesh and your ways does not accomplish the perfect and good plans of God, but the opposite. That faith, real faith, real uncertainty and belief that God will work for your good and his glory is required to know him and to be in a relationship with him. For Abram, think about this, the faith that God was asking of him. God was asking him to damage the part of his body that he needed for this promise to happen. Why? Because God wanted Abraham to have faith. He wanted to show him that nothing, nothing, not age, not barrenness, not something physical can stop God from accomplishing the things that he has promised. Nothing can stop him. 
And to close, many years later, God's going to bring about a new circumcision. The Old Testament prophets begin to speak about this idea of of a circumcised heart. Where before, a mark on the body showed us God's judgment, it showed us his mercy, and it showed us the faith that we need in him. Many years later, there would be a, a new mark, a new sign, and this one would come upon God himself. On the cross, Jesus took upon himself God's judgment, and he bore our shame and sins for what we've done. So now we, we can look at the cross and we, say, we can say, God is just. My sin is paid for. My shame has been taken. I don't need to pay for my, I don't need to pay for my sin myself. I don't need to live in shame and guilt. I look at the cross and I say, that is a sign of God's judgment. The cross is our sign. It also tells us that God is just. He doesn't just overlook sin. He, doesn't, he isn't just apathetic towards wrongs. The cross shows us, no, he cares about wrongs, and he does something about it. The cross becomes our sign to remember of God's judgment. The cross also becomes our sign, and it shows us of God's mercy. It shows us that our God is one of seeing He sees us in our misery and need, and he came to reconcile us back to himself. We also look at the cross. We can look at it and say, God is for me. God wants me. He gave his own son in order to have me. He looks merciful upon me. If he gave his son for me, what could he withhold back from me? I look at the cross and I remember he is a God of forgiving. And lastly, the cross also reminds us of the faith that we need to have a relationship with God. On the cross, Jesus shows us that it is only through faith in what he has done, not on what we can do, that we can be united to God. We see the cross as the clearest statement that there is no other way to be accepted and welcomed into a relationship with God apart from what Jesus has done. If there was any other way, it wouldn't have happened. We don't have a cross. Jesus doesn't come down. The cross reminds us, hey, there is no other way. You can't clean yourself up. You can't make yourself right. There are no amount of good works that takes away your wrongs. It is only by faith in what I've already done that you can be in relationship with me. The cross is our new sign that God is just and he pays for the judgment that we deserve. The cross is our new sign that God is merciful, that he doesn't leave us in our misery and need, but that he moves to action to forgive us and reconcile us. And the cross is our new sign that apart from faith in what Jesus has done, there is no relationship with God.
Do you feel seen by God? I know there's nothing I can do to convince you of that. Only God can show you that. Ask him, God, do you see me? Do you see what I'm feeling? Do you see my struggle? Do you see my fears? Ask him if that causes him to move towards you or away from you. Do you remember the cross? I know we know it. I know we see it. Do you remember what it means? That you don't have to walk in shame or guilt or condemnation. That's why Jesus suffered, so that you could be free, so that you could walk in freedom. For it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Do you remember that he's merciful? That in those moments that you just feel gone, lost, alone, he says, I see you, I hear you, I know you by name. Do you remember that you can't do it by yourself? You can't earn him. He's done it all. He says, just believe, have faith that what I've done is enough because it is enough. That's why Jesus said it is finished. Let's pray. Lord, your word tells us that you are a God of seeing. God, speak to us here this morning because you're alive and you can do that. God, I pray for everyone in here, including myself. God, do you see us? God, do you hear us? God, do you feel compelled to move towards us or away from us? God, remind us that the reason the cross is our sign as Christians is because you've taken the judgment we deserve. You offer us mercy because that's who you are. And that apart from faith, apart from surrendering our way, there is no relationship with you. Amen.